Amen. We're in the book of Revelation. We're going through the first judgment cycle uh, of Revelation, the four horsemen of the apocalypse. And uh, last uh, week before last, we talked about that and the great tribulation that is occurring now that is touching all of us uh, in many different ways, the hardship and the suffering that, that we all experience is part of that great tribulation. It's the four horsemen of, uh, of despair and, and personal conflict and uh, emotional suffering and economic insecurity and hardship just, and disease and, and, and this death and the separation from loved ones just ravages the earth. And last week we started talking about God started to unfold his encouragement for us. And this week he really hits the gas with the gospel. So I'm excited about today's passage. If you would please stand if you're able as we, uh, uh, out of respect for the reading of God's word, as we read from Revelation chapter 7. After this I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, that no wind might blow on earth or sea or against any tree. And then I saw another angel ascending from the rising sun with the seal of the living God, and he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm the earth and sea, saying, do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. 12,000 from the tribe of Judah were sealed, 12,000 from the tribe of Reuben, 12,000 from the tribe of Gad, 12,000 from the tribe of Asher, 12,000 from the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000 from the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000 from the tribe of Simeon, 12,000 from the tribe of Levi. 12,000 from the tribe of Issachar, 12,000 from the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000 from the tribe of Joseph, and 12,000 from the tribe of Benjamin were sealed. And after this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and people and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. And crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. And they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. And then one of the elders addressed me, saying... Who are these clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? And I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation, and they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple, and he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence, and they shall hunger no more neither thirst any more, the sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. This is the word of the Lord. Be to God. Amen. Please be seated. 
Uh, when I was working my way through Bible college uh, painting cars, I struck up a, a, a really close friendship with one of, the, one of the guys that I painted cars with who was a Jehovah's Witness. And he would tell me about like, what they would do, how, you know, how Je- what Jehovah's Witnesses would do throughout the week. And, and especially every year, I don't know if you know this or not, but every year there's a giant convocation of all Jehovah Witnesses worldwide who would meet at Qualcomm Stadium and hold a giant worship service. And I asked him, I said, how, how, is it, how do you guys do that? How do you, 50,000 people in there, how do you guys do communion? And he goes, he goes, oh, well, that's easy. He said, communion is only for the 144,000. And I said, what? He goes, yes, only the 144,000 in the book of Revelation have a special relationship with Jesus and only they are allowed to receive communion. And I said, so, well, how do you know? How do you know if you're one of them? He goes, you just know. And I said, have you ever seen one? And he goes, yeah. I was in the stands at Qualcomm Stadium, and the ushers were passing the trays with bread and wine through, and one time I saw a man take the elements and take communion, and I knew that he was one of the 144,000. As he watched in despair and sadness and exclusion, the trays pass by. Man, isn't that sad? Well, what was he, what was he doing? Overall, what was the, the big problem that he had and that Jehovah's Witnesses had in interpreting the Bible is he's looking at, unwittingly looking at the Bible through all of our 20th and 21st century filters and interpretive grids of rationalism and liter- literary literacy and and, 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 and and because of that because of those filters he would read this passage and say this is very clear this has to be 144,000 people with a special relationship with Jesus thus only they are allowed to commune with him in that way while the rest of us scallywags kind of like watch it all go down from the outskirts of ghetto heaven. What is he missing? Why did he get, why did they get there? Big, the big answer, big, the big realization is, or the big, the big reason why they get there, why a lot of Christians um, misunderstand things in the Bible is because number one, we don't take into consideration the cultural background that the passage was first written into. In other words, we look at it and we read it with all of our 21st century filters rather than taking the time to understand how the ancient Near Eastern culture, how the Jewish culture would have understood that passage. And the second thing is we don't take time to put passages into the context of the big story of the Bible, the big picture story of the Bible. We compartmentalize these little stories without really plugging them into what does this have to do with God's plan of salvation from beginning to end, the covenants, the promise to Abraham, the institution of Israel, Israel, the covenant going out into the nations. There's a big story in the Bible. And if we don't plug the little stories into that, and if we don't uh, take into account the cultural foundations or the cultural background that those that those Bible texts were given into, even well-meaning Orthodox believers will necessarily get stuff wrong. And that, you know, sideline, 
It's a great first couple of questions to ask if you have some you know, Jehovah Witnesses or Mormons visiting you in your house. The first thing you ask them is, while they explain their passage, can you explain to me the cultural background of this passage? And can you explain to me the big theme of this book and how it fits in the theme of the Bible? Note to self. Uh, we do it too. Christians end up doing that too. Uh, quite often, unfortunately. Um, you may be surprised how often this happens even in Christian uh, spheres and in Christian theology. There's a, the theological word for it is called biblicism, the idea that me and my Bible and my 21st century filters will be able to accurately interpret everything in the text. And the, the reason that's uh, uh, believable is because there's a certain amount of truth to that. Martin Luther said, the main things are the plain things. In other words, anybody can pick up a Bible and read it. You can read to the Gospel of John and get a really good picture of what is required for salvation and faith and life. However, there are other parts of the Bible that are confusing. Amen? I'm confused by all kinds of stuff in the Bible. But my experience has been is that when I run into those things, when I run into that confusion, that's where you start digging and when you start digging there, more often than not, I have found that is where God has hidden some of the most beautiful things in the text. And we are now at a passage in Revelation. Talk about confusing books of the Bible. People are all kind of confused about Revelation. It's some people are just don't even want to talk, get into it because it's so, it seems so confusing, but it's really not. And we're going to look today at one of the first, like, big burning questions that everybody asks about the book of Revelation, one of the things that's confusing to a lot of people, which is, who are the 144,000? Uh, who are they, and what are they doing here? <laughs> are they some special select group of Christians uh, or Jews, or, uh, and who also is the great multitude that follows this vision? Are they somehow, you know, Christians on the outer rim uh, of the church? And even more importantly, why are these two visions put together? That's a big, that's an important question. And today we're going to find out that the big idea of this whole passage, let me tell you right up front, the big idea that God is trying to communicate to us, that the Holy Spirit wants us to know about this passage is this, that from before the beginning until after the end, God has always kept us safe. From before the beginning until after the end, God has always kept us safe. And to answer that, uh, to explain what I mean by that or why that is the big idea of this passage, we have to first ask that burning question, who are the 144,000? So let's start there. Is this a select group of uh, superstar revelation rock stars or is it something else? Uh, there, is a, there was a once very popular school of thought. I actually, in my Bible college, where I was uh, my first, uh, when I went to college to, on my bachelor's in, in biblical studies, was a school that held this, this, this school of thought, which was basically that there are two peoples of God. There are ethnic Jews, uh, and ethnic Jews are, um, the ethnic Jews and ethnic Israel uh, are going to, uh, in the millennium, be with Jesus personally in Jerusalem and in Israel with Jesus in a special in a special relationship with Jesus. 
And then all the rest of us Gentile scallywags will be on the, on the restored earth, but outside of that, in uh, a more scattered, scattered throughout the earth, or scattered throughout the kingdom on the outskirts of the restored earth. It's kind of similar. Uh, and so therefore, when you, under, when, you, when you look at the Bible through that lens and that filter, it's obvious that the 144,000 must be a remnant of those Jewish believers who are being pulled out of the great tribulation at the end of history. And it's just, uh, just a straightforward reading of this passage. You would look at it and you would say, well, of course it is. It says so. Twelve tribes of Israel. Numbers them out. It even tells us how many there are going to be. But that is our 21st century filters at work. That's not how the ancient Near East and the ancient people who received this text would have heard this. How do we know that? First thing we, is we need to look at are the numbers involved here. Let's talk about this first because uh, this is going to come up over and over again as we go through the book of Revelations. We, we hear numbers and what do we do? We bust out our calculators. We're like 12,000, 12,000, carry the three to the 15, seven, you know, blah, 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 blah. We pump it in, in, our, in our, with our rationalist filters, and we think those numbers, our numbers always mean specific things. Those numbers must mean literal, specific numbers. And so we bust out our calculators, and we figure out exactly how many Jews are going to be saved. Uh, problem with that, there's 350,000 Messianic Jews alive right now, so if this is just strictly Jews, we already got a problem. Um, but this is what, listen to, listen to this. In the ancient world, numbers all had spiritual or significant. They had, they had symbolic significance. And you see it all over the place when you know what to look for. Twelve, always the number of the fullness of God's people. Twelve patriarchs, twelve apostles. New Jerusalem comes down out of heaven. Uh, and there's twelve foundations, twelve gates. All of those things are symbolic references. Remember, the visions, these visions are not premonitions of future literal historic events. We've already proven that. They are symbolic visions teaching us truthful things about the spirit war and about God's kingdom. And so 12 is always, always the number of the fullness of God's people. And a thousand was a way in the ancient world to symbolize multitudes or great multitudes of people. So you add it, you tack a thousand to that 12, you get 12,000. It means the fullness of God's people in its multitude. And four, the four angels holding back the four corners of the earth, the ancient people have always looked at that and said, that means the whole earth. We even still do that. We talk about the four corners of the earth. We talk about the four points of the compass. And when we say that, what do we mean? We mean the totality of the earth. So listen, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what we think these numbers mean because we're looking at it through our filters. We're not supposed to bust out our calculators and make sense of this based on how we were trained in rationalism growing up as American Christians. What matters, the only thing that matters is what the ancient people would have thought this mean, what they would have heard naturally in their cultural environment. What they would have heard is this. They would have heard the fullness of all God's people from the four corners of the earth. Boom. Now, second question. Because it's talking about the tribes of Israel, does it mean that this is necessarily uh, Jewish believers at the end of time? Well, 
there's like 15 things I could say right here, but we're in a sermon, and this isn't a theology lecture, so I got to just, I got to hit some high points. If you got questions about this or this concerns you, please talk to me more about it later, okay? Um, in chapter 14, we see the 144,000 pictured again with Jesus, and this time there's even more symbolism around there, and there's described as being redeemed from all the earth and from mankind, not just from Israel. Uh, and they are described, again, as the fullness of all of God's elect. Uh, even more persuasive is that in, uh, in the second half of this chapter, when we get to the great multitude, what are they doing? They're waving palm branches. That's an astonishingly Jewish thing to do, isn't it? They're celebrating the Feast of Tabernacles, which is the celebration of God's providence and protection and faithfulness bringing his people through the exodus and through the wilderness. The exodus in the Old Testament was a physical picture. Deliverance from slavery in Egypt, it's a physical picture of the reality that would come. Jesus, as the new Moses, delivers his people from the slavery of sin and death. And so here's a picture of this great multitude of everybody celebrating this Jewish Feast of Tabernacles. Why? They're celebrating God's deliverance through the true tribulation, through the spiritual exodus, through and out of slavery to sin and into our heavenly home. Uh, they, are, they are also described as fulfilling these prophecies straight out of Isaiah and Ezekiel that in those texts are talking about the Jewish nation, but in the fulfillment of them, we see it is the fullness of God's people from all the four corners of the earth. And if that doesn't convince you, and I know I'm going into kind of a lot of detail because it's important for you, you to see this, for you to see the beauty and the treasure that God has hidden in this. The last thing is, in Revelation, there's a pattern that throughout where John will hear something pronounced by the angels, and then he will see it in vision. Okay, look what happens in this. In 7, 3, and 4, what does John do? He hears the angel calling out the numbers of these tribes. He doesn't ever see them. He does not see 12,000 of the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000 of the tribe of Judah. He hears the angel pronouncing uh, these names, and then, right in line with the pattern of Revelation, then he looks and behold, what does he see? He sees the great multitude waving palm branches. And so what's the answer? Who are these people? Who are the 144,000? Who's the great multitude? It's the same people. It's the same group of people. They're first pictured or they're not, they're, they're spoken of in, in the sea, in the, in the promise form of what God began to do through the nation of Israel, the promises that he made to Abraham that would realize in Israel and then spread out through the world. And then the vision is of that promise in its fulfillment. What did God promise? Your descendants will be as numerous as the stars of the heaven, as numerous as the sand of the sea, innumerable, uncountable, a great multitude. Uh, so this is why this is so important. 
If we look at the Bible, we read it in our literal filters, in our 21st century filters, you miss that. And if you miss that picture, you go all kind of funny ways in left field and not, you miss the beauty and the glory of what God is truly doing in history. You miss not only the cultural foundation, but you miss the big story of the Bible. And it misses us. Because then if this is about a remnant of Jews at the end of time, it's really got not a lot to do with us. But this is God's promise and God's fulfillment that has everything to do with us. And it's encouraging, and that's what is going on. With that crucial piece of the puzzle in place, now we can move on to how these visions work together. Why are they next to each other? And the reason is promise and fulfillment promise and fulfillment, which happens to be the big story of the Bible. What's that? Hmm? Hey, there we go. Sorry. <laughs> I'm a little gun shy when the power you know, voice goes out, voice goes out. Okay. Um, I've told this story before, but I almost drowned at Ocean, at Ocean Beach, at Dog Beach one day. <laughs> Maybe, oh gosh, I was probably 20, 27 or so. I used to be a, a lifeguard on Catalina, and I would pretty much, all the time, often, we would swim out to this rock, which was about half mile out. So I would be just doing mile ocean, uh, ocean swimming when I was 18 years old. And then one day, when I was 27, I decided to go down to Ocean Beach and just do the same thing. With, you know, just nothing in between, thinking I could totally do this. Uh, way the breakers. And uh, getting tired, and I was like, oh my gosh, I am like running out of steam, and then I started getting panicked, 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 because I really started thinking, man, this is how it all ends. I'm totally going to die at Dog Beach, swimming out past the breakers. Uh, and so I see out of the corner of my eye, I see this 12-year-old kid on a boogie board, and I start screaming at him, like, help, come and save me. The kid looks at me. Stand up, man. And then I notice he's standing on his boogie board. I had swam in, but I was so panic-stricken, I didn't even realize that I could have just stood up. And so I like, felt like a... So I stood up, and uh, I was saved from destruction. And you know, that's a, that's a, it's a great picture of life, isn't it? When we get all panic-stricken... Getting yourself into trouble and you start freaking out and we forget all about God's promises. And God, in his mercy, gives us passages like this and then what they tell us to do is they say, stand up, I got you covered. You're already protected, you're already safe. Just stand up in it. Now, how does it do that? It does it through promise and fulfillment the big story of the Bible. And that's why it's so important to see these two visions together uh, in their real meaning. Uh, first, these visions, let's remember now, these visions are not uh, following the sequence of earth time. 
right? It's not one vision, it's this happens, and then this happens, and then this happens, and then this happens. Uh, it's, the visions aren't following our earth time. However, there are timestamps in the visions so we can understand roughly like how they plug in to the big story of the Bible, the context of God's salvation over the course of time. And so listen, the first vision, uh, the 144,000, when does this happen? This happens before the tribulation. We go back, we go through the chapter 6, the tribulation, the four horsemen ride out into the earth, bringing with them destruction and death and hardship and pain and suffering and emotional sorrow. Uh, and then in the midst of that, we get anxious and God like stops the set, rolls back the camera and from a different angle, he tells the angels, before you allow any of that to happen, you first seal my people. So this is before the great tribulation. And he says, seal my people. That's what God is doing. What does that mean? He's sealing his people with his spirit. Look at what Paul says in 2 Corinthians. He says, and it is God who establishes us. Not you. God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. That's a promise. Guarantee is a special word in Greek that means down payment. It's God, it's God uh, saying, giving us the down payment uh, on which is the spirit. And it is also his promise that he is going to pay the rest. Bring us into physical glory. And God cannot lie. If he gives you the down payment, he cannot and will not renege on that deal. He is promising to finish and to complete what he promises in that down payment. So he's sealing his people with his spirit before anything happens. <clears throat> now is this, you know, what is, where, exactly where in time is this? I don't know, maybe right, you know, before the church age or maybe before the foundation of the world. There's a lot of texts that support that. What's important to understand is that before any of life hits you hard, before anything hits you that will threaten to make you quit God and run, the Spirit doesn't seal us and protect us against physical harm. What it does is it protects our faith. God seals us in faith and promises that we will persevere in faith throughout this age. Four horsemen are going to hit you. But what the sealing means is that when they hit you, it won't be ultimately disaster, it will ultimately be purification, training up, uh, growing us and blessing us in it for his people. Second vision, the great multitude, when does this happen? This happens after the tribulation. Look at verse 14. Verse 14 says, coming, these are the ones who are coming out of the great tribulation. This is the after party. This is the eternal state, the presence of God. This is us in glory after 
this earth and this age in the new age, worshiping God and praising him. And what are the saints doing? So the first in the sealing, first in the first vision, we saw what God was doing, sealing the fullness of his elect from all earth, from all time in this vision, in the after party, in the great heavenly worship. What do we see the saints doing? Two things. Number one, giving all glory to God. Nobody's up there saying, all power and glory and honor and wisdom to me because I figured this out. Praise God. I thought through the hard questions of life and philosophy and suffering and pain and death and sin and how a holy God could forgive sin, and it just came to me. Well, he must produce a sacrifice, a substitute for my sin, and I must have an alien righteousness. I totally thought that out on myself. Nobody thought that out on themselves. God gives us that faith, that that clear vision of spiritual reality seals us with his spirit to protect that as the devil tries to knock it out of view and here we see at the end all the saints are recognizing what just happened God did this salvation belongs to God is the Hebrew way of saying he did it all and the second thing second thing what are they doing What is the crucial difference between the dreaded earth dwellers and the saints? They do a very strange thing. They say these are the ones who have washed their robes white in the blood of the lamb. Now, don't try that at home, kids. If you wash your flowing robe in blood, Ain't gonna work. That's gonna be a big mess. So what is this? This must be symbolic. It's saying that through Jesus' shed blood, the trusting in the shed blood of Jesus, which covers and atones for, takes away our sins, they are made holy and pure before the presence of God and are safe there. Do you know what this, this whole section is right here? This, this section of the two visions together? Remember the end of chapter 6, verse 17? Uh, big question was asked. It's the time of God's wrath and who can stand? Who can possibly stand? And we see the earth dwellers just being crushed. This answers the question. This is, chapter 7 is the answer to 617. Who can stand? The great multitude. What God promised in Israel, the saints that have been sealed by his power, those who have the spirit, and the multitude of God that God has called out of the earth and given the righteousness of Jesus and cleansed by his blood, that's who can stand, and that's the only people that can stand. do Do you see what's happening here? If you, don't get the, if, you don't, if you don't understand the cultural background, if you don't plug it into the big story of the Bible, you totally miss it. But what these are are bookends. They're bookends. It's a vision of before the great tribulation where God promises to keep us safe by sealing us with his power to see us through. And then the other side of the bookend is the end, the story, the end of the story, the final chapter where the celebration is happening and, and God, what God promised in the sealing, he has, he has come through on and brought into reality in the new creation. 
Now, look, if you're reading a novel, if you're reading Lord of the Rings, you don't want to go to the last chapter and read it. You know, it kind of wrecks the book because you, you lose the sense of urgency and the sense of drama. But in, hey, in real life, in real life, when you are like flailing in the water and panic-stricken and thinking you are about to drown, we need to know this because the stakes are way higher. And this is God in these two bookends saying, hey man, stand up, you're good, I got you. I've always had you. There's never been a time in your life, there's never been a time even when you were in the imagination of God where God did not have you safe. From before the beginning until after the end, God has always kept us safe. In the epilogue, it ends, the story ends with all the saints in ceaseless worship praising God. I have friends that kind of dismiss Christianity because they think in passages like this where it shows the payoff for us is endless worship of God and they're like, sitting in church forever, no thanks. Uh, they're mistaking the forms of worship for the formalism of worship. But what is this showing us? What is this picture showing us? It's showing us a picture of, of what ceaseless worship is, is, the, is, is our reality at the end of the curse. When the tribulation is ended, the four horsemen are gone and the curse has been lifted. Uh, and God in his goodness is feeding us and we are being constantly fed on nothing but the life that comes from Jesus. See, in, in this world, we are tempted to feed ourselves on the immediate, on what's pleasurable right now, on our sin. Uh, and that brings with it death and destruction and brings with it suffering. There's sometimes, well, I just get this, well, it's this like craving and I've got to go to Five Guys and eat this giant meal. Double patty, double extra jalapenos, bacon, you know what I'm talking about. And then they give you the fry, you know, they give you the fries and they fill the whole bag up with fries all the way to the top. And I'm like, yes, give me one of those. And I sit there and I eat it and I eat it and it's so good and I eat it until we're driving home and I feel sick, like I'm gonna die and I hate myself. And here's the thing, if I did that once, you'd be like, all right, you made a mistake. But I do it all the time. And so do you. Reach. <laughs> That's a picture. What is that a picture of? My appetites have the tendency to seek salvation in the immediate gratification of my senses. Not just my appetite, not just my food appetite, but all of our human appetites. I am hardwired because of the fall to seek pleasure now, even though I know it's going to make me sick. And, and so worship, that's the difference between worshiping God and sin. They're both worship. It's what you assign best, highest value to. We have a worship disorder. And so in the world, in this fallen catastrophe, we are feeding on sin because of our fallen natures. It's making us sick. But this is a picture. Listen to what happens here. We are sheltered by God's presence, contrasted with his absence. 
There is no more hunger, no thirst. There's no scorching heat. That's a picture of the curse being lifted and the tribulation over. And instead, instead of feeding on sin and feeding on worship, Jesus is pastoring us, shepherding us constantly under his protection and care and provision. He is giving us true water, true bread, true drink that nourishes us. It's life. It's eternal life. It's what we're, all, it's what we're trying to get out of sin, but will never work. And so we don't have to go as Christians who belong to Jesus in having the spirit. We don't have to go back to the stuff that never worked. We can even right now in our worship, what that is, is assigning more value to the life that comes from Christ and seeking that rather than the sin which makes us sick. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We are so grateful for the pictures that you provide for us so that we can see uh, your promises and so we can know we're safe. So Lord, we pray that you would help us to remember this throughout the week as the devil assails us and tempts us, tries to make us think that the disordered desires of our heart are what will bring us peace and what will bring us life and instead to trust in you and the perfection of your word and believe it more than we believe the little seductive lying voices in our hearts that tell us otherwise, Lord. Our hearts are not trustworthy, but your word is. Help us to see that, immerse ourselves in it, and then worship you as a means of, as a means of saying what you have in your life is better than any temporary thing the world has to offer, and I want that. It's a blessing. It is your love for us. So help us, Lord. We love you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.